0: Welcome to the Modern Poetry in Translation podcast. I'm Claire Pollard, the editor, and today I'm speaking to Alan Cummings, a senior lecturer in Japanese studies at SOAS, University of London. I first met when he was translating for one of the Poetry Translation Centre's wonderful workshops. He works on early modern Japanese literature and theatre, and amongst his many translations is haiku, love a beautifully illustrated anthology for the British Museum. I highly recommend if you're interested in this form. This spring, Modern Poetry and Translation launched an issue called Dream Colours, Focus on Japan. And we were generously sponsored by an IfBook Dot Award to run an online workshop on Japanese poetry when the issue came out. The stipulation of that award was that we do something slightly different and explore the possibilities of digital and online poetry. It was spring, it was lockdown. Instagram was wall to wall blossom. People were looking for things to do and new skills to try. So we decided to invite Alan to set a workshop based on Japanese haiku that referred to the season, spring. And we invited translations not only into English but into any other medium, from audio to animation, photographs to sketches. I'm very pleased to say we have the best response to one of our workshops yet with over 60. So, thank you, everyone who submitted. So, Alan, to begin with, would you be able to tell us a little about the form haiku? Uh,
1: yeah, haiku is it's, it's the best known uh, form of, of Japanese poetry uh, in the West. I know, I guess, if it's famous for anything, it's famous for being intensely short. Um, so in Japanese, it's just seventeen syllables, and they're divided up. Well, in, it's a little it's a little tricky because in Japanese, normally you would see them written just as one line, uh, but there is a sense that they do exist in in three in three connected units. So, if you like in, in English, they often become uh, a three line seventeen syllable poem. Uh, so the, the the syllable count for each line then is five, seven, and five. As a as a form, it's it's a relatively late developing form uh, in Japanese because the the central form of classical Japanese poetry, you know, from the from the eighth century uh, onwards, uh, is a form uh, known as a tanka, which is a thirty-one syllable poem uh, five seven five seven seven. But there were always kind of drinking games that people liked to play, where that thirty-one uh, syllable form would often be split up into two pieces, into a five seven five, which you notice is a haiku, essentially, uh, and then the 7-7. Seven seven, uh, and people would would get drunk together and they would take turns to kind of compose these together. So somebody would compose the first three lines and then somebody else was supposed to, to add uh, a 7-7 seven seven, uh, to that. And it's that kind of quite light... Um, form, kind of drunken form of poetry a collaborative form of poetry as well that, that haiku then developed side off in the uh, in the 16th and 17th century onwards haiku haiku was was intensely popular in Japan's early modern period. So from the you know, 1600 uh, up until the, the mid 19th century, particularly of course, uh, famous poets like uh, like Basho. Uh, and Basho is really like a, a pivotal figure in the creation of, of haiku as a, as a serious form of poetry. Uh, pre-Basho haiku is still uh, quite ribald. Um, It can be quite erotic. It can be quite comic and and grotesque, Uh, but Basho tries to to change haiku into into something much more elevated and something much more serious. Um, And his his form of haiku becomes really the center ground. Um, And haiku is still, um, you know, there are thousands of people who still compose haiku uh, in Japan today. You know, if you live somewhere in Japan often the local neighborhood there will be somebody who will run uh, a haiku circle you know people will get together once a week with a little group uh, and you compose together maybe you've been given a theme to work on for that week and you come in with something uh, or a few things you've come up with and then people will will, will read them and the teacher will, will correct them or make suggestions um, and yeah, you know, there's still you know there are haiku tv shows uh, where where people can send in their poems uh, there's still a lot of a, a vast amount of kind of publication of haiku um, in in Japan as well so it's still you know it's an old form but it's still a very very central uh, form in Japanese literary culture today.
0: Thank you so much and um, can we uh, perhaps talk through the three uh, haiku that you set as part of the workshop which were all from that kind of golden period 18th, 19th century and mm-hmm. um, so the first was a a blossomy one, wasn't it?
1: It was a blossomy one. Yeah. So uh, you know, picking picking just just spring as a as a theme, uh, it works because classical haiku is, is always structured around a theme. People would be given uh, a theme to to write to, um, and almost always they are they are kind of natural themes and natural images. And your know, haiku uh, traditionally roots itself. In a season or a very particular part uh, of a season, uh, through what's known as a, a kigo or a, a seasonal word, um, which you know that you can buy kind of books of kigo uh, in Japan that will kind of divide up any sort of natural image you can think of, any sort of plant uh, or animal or types of clouds or types of weather. Um, dozens and dozens, hundreds of things can be can be kigo, but those kigo then become, if you like, the the key around which people people write. Um, so with, with spring, uh, of course, you know, Japanese uh, culture um, is always particularly fond of the, of the seasons where there is the maximum amount of change. Um, so in, in Tanka poetry as well, you get, um, you get the, the most amount of poetry is written about spring and autumn because those are the moments of transition where you can see the season changing. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, those, those traditional anthologies, they always have a lot of spring poems, a lot of autumn poems, uh, but obviously with spring then cherry blossoms, you think Japan, you think spring, you think cherry blossoms, you know, those, those are going to be, uh, one of the, one of the big, uh, images. Um, and you know, cherry blossoms in Japan, um, they they always carry a, a certain kind of semantic weight to them. There's, there's a lot of kind of meaning that gets attached. You know, they're pink, they're beautiful, uh, and I guess you you know that they're they're very short lived. We kind of we we notice that here as well. You know, there's something that are at that, at their peak. Um, you know, for a week or so um, in April, maybe ten days. Uh, but it's also a time of year when you can get. You know, a sudden shower you can get a windstorm you can get even snow uh, sometimes. So there's lots of things that kind of can can disturb the the pinkness and the floweringness of uh, of cherry blossoms. um So cherry blossoms in Japan always have an association with ephemerality, this idea that nothing is constant, nothing is permanent. We're kind of we're we're, we're kind of connected to this, this this kind of moment of transition and and change uh, and cherry blossoms also get associated very very clearly in japan with aging and death uh as well you know those kind of those there's, there's, there's the human implications of uh of, of of the ephemeral um yeah so so cherry blossoms are are a big one we could have just very easily had had three poems that were just about cherry blossoms but that seemed a little boring so uh i just went with uh with one of those, um, do 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 you want me to read that that first one?
0: Yeah, if Maybe. you could read it, that would be beautiful.
1: Yeah. So okay. So the, the first the first one uh, is by uh, Enomoto Seifu, um, who's uh, an eighteenth nineteenth uh, century uh, samurai uh, poet, um, and she she begins to kind of write from around about the seventeen fifties. Um, and her kind of her production of poetry also seems quite connected to personal events in her life because we know that um, you know after her her the death of her husband she seems to be able to write a lot more poetry. And you think what on earth is going on there? Was she you know, was she looking after him for a long time? Was she you know, too busy cooking to be able to write poetry? Who knows? Um, but so the, the poem uh, by her I'll read it out in Japanese first. Uh, Cherry no moto ni dokorokana. Uh, and I provided a, a very literal translation for that with some notes. Um, Falling blossoms beneath, lying happily, a skull.
0: Wonderful, thank you. And and you say in your notes she wrote that at a time of famine as well.
1: Yeah, I mean this this is one of one of the interesting things about uh, about haiku. I guess we we often think about them as being you're quite divorced from human reality, we kind of think of them as being very more rooted in the natural uh world um but there's there's always kind of the, there's a there's always an overlap because of course they're written by human beings who are who are who are who are living in the world so there there is always an emotional um an emotional undercurrent to them uh as well uh and yeah at the time she she was she was writing uh this particular poem uh there was a a pretty, a pretty substantial famine uh, in Japan, and you know famines at that time they they tended to to hit the rural areas uh, most heavily. Um, so that that kind of image of a of a skull or a skeleton uh, lying out under a, under the cherry blossoms, you know, it's a it's a beautiful one, but it's also it's also quite a disturbing one if you think about that. Uh, contemporary reality. Um, interestingly, it's also another one that, that kind of links back to Japanese literary history. Um, I guess we have Hamlet and his uh, and his skull. Um, you know the Yorick skull, um, all that famous stuff. But J- Japan also has kind of poems um, going way back to you know the eighth, ninth century, uh, which are about poets traveling and find there's one particular poem from a, uh, an early anthology called the Man'yoshu um, about a poet coming across a body by the side of the road. Um, and then he writes this, this meditation uh, on that particular corpse, kind of thinking about, you know, were you a traveler? Did you get sick? Did you have an accident? Something happened to you? Do you, are you is your family still waiting at home, hoping you're going to come back, totally unaware of what's happened to you? So there's a, a very famous, and there's a kind of a long meditation in Japanese between that, that, that idea of traveling and, and death. Um, so that, that image of the skeleton and nature is is it speaks to a contemporary reality, you know, for any modern sofa, but it also speaks to, to literary tradition as well.
0: And I think it spoke to a lot of um our readers too in this pandemic year, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um okay, let's move on to the second haiku then.
1: Um yeah, so the, the, the second the second haiku is by Yosa Busong. Uh, and Busong of course is one of those, those huge names in uh, in early modern Japanese uh haiku history. Um if you think if you think I guess you think top five, you think Basho, and then you probably think think Busan somewhere in, in that in that list. Um, um, and he's you know he was somebody who was following in the in the footsteps of uh of Basho, even kind of emulating one of Basho's famous uh, famous journeys around uh northern uh Japan. Um and this is this is this is quite an unusual uh, little poem. So I'll I'll read I'll read it for you. Harusame uh, ya ko iso Harusame ya no kogai nururu hodo. And the literal translation of that: spring rain beaches small shells to moisten enough.
0: Lovely, and you had a you had a lovely note about the, the spring rain. It's a very specific, sort of light replenishing. Uh,
1: yeah, so so that 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 word that they use for spring rain, actually the two characters they do just mean spring and rain. Uh, Harusame. Uh, it you know, it refers to a, a very kind of light drizzly uh, spring rain that, that you, you kind of think of as as, as something that's replenishing or, or revitalizing. Uh, mm. Nature, mm. beautiful,
0: and then the third
1: one. The third one, uh, the third one uh, is by um, a slightly later poet. Comes uh, kind of she, she's born uh, Sugita Hisajo, uh, born in the late nineteenth century, eighteen ninety, um, and she's born in uh, in in southern Japan. Um, and she, she has kind of like a, a scandalous poetic career, including getting kicked out of her uh, out of her poetry circle for for reasons unknown. Um, there was always a lot of kind of uh, tortuous, tortuous relationships between particularly female poets and their and their usually their male poetic mentors. There's there's a lot of kind of uh, a lot of stuff going on um, in, in in those kind of poetry circles at that time. Um, but her, her poem um, then uh, in Japanese, Chō ote haru mayoi kiri. And the literal translation, uh, butterflies facing spring hills deeply get lost.
0: And, and um, you said something really interesting about this, which is that nouns are not specified as being singular or plural. So it's up to the reader to decide whether um, they're pursuing a single butterfly or a whole cloud of butterflies, yeah. The, the, the,
1: the, this is one of the peculiar, peculiarities of, of Japanese. Um, Japanese manages just to have two tenses, uh, but with nouns, it doesn't. It doesn't do gendered nouns, but it doesn't. It doesn't do singular or plural either. Mm. Um, and also, so that one of the things that Japanese struggle with when they start speaking English um, is that kind of singular, the difference between singular and plural. Uh, but also the difference between a definite and an indefinite article, because that doesn't exist in Japanese either. Uh, whether it's an a thing or whether it's the thing, um, but yeah, so that it, it could be—it's it's up to you to decide whether you're imagining a single butterfly or a huge, or a huge cloud uh, of butterflies, and likely in the same way, one spring mountain or or multiple spring mountains. <clears throat> mm,
0: really interesting. Thank you. Um, okay, so let's talk about um, some of the choices. Um, sure. First, we should just mention some of the amazing translations we had in across media. We had kind of beautiful watercolours, sketches, quite a few video poems, mm-hmm. um, a Lego translation by Silas Gordon of a kind of Lego uh, skeleton under a blossom tree, which I particularly loved. Um, and there were two that you gave special mentions to. Mm-hmm. Um, which is Julia uh, Carla Rossi's uh, game. That was fantastic, wasn't it? It was a amazing. Kind of mini- <laughs> yeah, unbelievable. A mini game using a kind of bitsy game engine um, that you can interact with. Do check it out on our website um, if you're listening. Uh, and it's got a three color palette, which kind of references the haiku's three line structure. I thought it was just really, really smart um, piece of work. And another special mention was. For Josephine Coracan's collage, a collage poem um, that included kind of um, blossom that had fallen off a tree and um, headlines about PPE. <laughs> didn't it? <laughs> um, so that really, uh, again, responding to that um, that first haiku, the blossom and the skull, I think was something a lot of people, particularly, um, noticed in this in in this t- lockdown spring.
1: I mean, one 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 thing I, I thought was really interesting about that is that you know even traditional Japanese poets like, like Basho, they worked across multiple genres. I mean, Basho, mm. for example, is, is known for his his kind of travel prose or kind of his his intermingled. Poetry with prose. I, 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 do we have a good word for that? I don't think we do. Um, but can travel <laughs> journals which have prose, but then they also have poems written at specific or inspired by specific places. Um, so there's, you know, there's lots of, of haiku poets who write that kind of prose, which they call haibun. So that even like the high bit of haiku is, you know, this, this, it's an idea that it's a way of looking at the world, a way of thinking mm. of the world. Uh, and there's also a lot of haiku poets who are artists as well. So there's a whole tradition of what are called haiga. Uh, so like haiku inspired uh usually kind of ink painting mm. ink style painting um so that that idea that that haiku is a way of kind of thinking uh, thinking about encapsulating or, or kind of theorizing the world um that you can take across different media um that's you know that that's that, that's something that was there at the time in japan um so i i was I was really excited to to see some of those. Um, yeah, you know, the the collage was 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 was, was really great, and, and you know the uh, the bitsy game was uh, was amazing. I, I I really enjoyed both of those.
0: Thank you. And then um, your so for haiku two, the spring rain haiku by Busson.
1: And um, um, you
0: chose Madeline Campbell's. But-
1: so the, the, this is the this is the spring rain uh, haiku. Madeline uh, Madeleine uh, Campbell's translation uh, is is a I guess it's a dialect translation. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not from Scotland, unfortunately, because I think it's a Scottish dialect poem. Yes. Uh, a light exactly. smear quenches wee cockles on the sand beds, gifted by yon spring. That's lovely. It is, isn't it?
0: The wee cockles. I love the wee cockles. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, I, I was you know I, I was thinking about about that particular poem and 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 one of the things I, th- I thought was key to it was was the fineness of the rain. It seemed to be important that it is that very specific type of drizzly kind of rain because mm. you know re- reading reading the poems that there were a lot of people who had who had kind of more dramatic, uh, types of rain, um, and I think kind of more more dramatic types of beaches uh, mm. as well. Because um, the, the other thing about this poem is is that it's actually if you look at the the Japanese line, it's quite repetitive. no kogai no So it's it's tiny shells on a tiny beach, uh, mm. which are which are being then uh, engaging with this this tiny. Light, fine.
0: The smallness is important. Yes,
1: yeah. So the, the the smallness, I think, I think seemed seemed really important in that one. Um, mm. And yeah, the the, the the wee cockles, I I I, I, thought, I thought was 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 lovely.
0: Then the uh, uh haiku, the butterfly chasing. You chose Elaine Morris's version for this.
1: I did. Um, I think I think this one was was for me the hardest one to judge um, because there, there were a lot of, a lot of translations that for some reason I, I think they ended up being quite similar. Um, that there's, I, I, I think the, you know, the, the sense the kind of the, the abandon in that poem, that kind of sense of losing yourself in the spring, there seemed to be something that kind of resonated in a very, very similar way with almost everybody who submitted a translation for that particular poem. Um, I think it, it's maybe one that resonated with that particular moment back in back in April uh, as well, where we where we were all locked up, and then suddenly finding that that kind of, the natural world could, could suddenly mean something again. It could be something that you could lose yourself, lo- lose that particular that particular moment that we were that we were stuck in. There um, and it seemed to provide a, a way out, but yeah, the, the the translations for this one were were very very similar. But um, Elaine Morris's uh, her translation, uh, "Butterfly Chasing, Lost in Wonder, Spring Hills," um, you know, it, it, it's 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 very succinct. Um, I, I I really like that uh, that 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 central uh, that lost in wonder. Um, it's, a, it's, it's an amplification, uh, but it's an amplification, I think, that, that, that works really, really, uh, that works really beautifully um, with mm-hmm. the, the imagery of that, uh, of that particular poem. Um, it's, you know, in gr- gr- grammatically in, in, in Japanese, um, often haiku, there are kind of, two different ha- types of haiku that I think you see in terms of the grammatical structure. Um, you'll see ones that are kind of split into two bits, uh, you know, Basho very often his first line will be one unit and there will be a you know there'll be a hyphen or there'll be a colon or something there to kind of show a split um, and then the the last two lines will be another unit so you see that kind of structure quite often uh, but the other structure you'll see is where they, they kind of, they function as just a single sentence um, and this is one that functions as a as a single sentence um, and the, there's something about that getting lost in in wonder, uh, where you can't even apply a grammatical logic uh, to your thoughts. There's something about just kind of flowing uh, with 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 wherever the butterflies are taking you, with wherever the words are taking you. Um, so yeah, I I, I, I really like Elaine Morris's, but I think that that was one that seemed to resonate in a very similar way with almost everybody yeah. who sent in a translation for it.
0: Yeah, and finally the um, the your your overall winner that the, the the haiku uh, you wanted to give a special mention to mm-hmm. was a translation by John Wall yeah. of um, the first haiku that that blossom school haiku that we that so many people seem to respond to so deeply um,
1: yeah, that, that, that's the I think that's the one that seemed to kind of inspire the the most the most other types of submission as well as the uh, mm. you know, translation there were translations into lots of other media uh, with that one um, yeah. and I, I think it's probably easy, it's very easy to, to see why. Um, it's that, it's the skeleton, isn't it? <laughs> uh, not the skull. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, John, John Wells' translation, uh, Sitting Joyfully uh, Beneath Falling Blossom, a Skull. Um, with that one, what, what I really wanted to, uh, to see um, was a contrast between motion and stillness because it, it, it seems to be important that the skull is, is lying there, sitting there, uh, and then you have not just the, the cherry blossom, which is up in the branches in the tree, but it's, it's in motion. It's kind of coming down mm-hmm. towards, the, uh, towards the skull. So that there's something about that motion and stillness uh, that I think uh, is important. Uh, and the other thing I, I, I really liked is that is that last line um, where the, the skull comes as a shark because you mm. don't expect to see skulls and poems which are like cherry blossoms. Um, yeah,
0: especially, and joy, because he's, he's bumped the kind of joy, the happiness, up into the first line as well, hasn't he? So he's really, it makes it more of a poem with a twist
1: in a way, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, uh, I thought that, that, that captured, you know, the, the motion and stillness, but then, but then also the, the shock uh, mm-hmm. that, you, that you get with that, uh, with that last image.
0: Thank you very, very much, Alan, for talking about hiking with us and sharing your kind of thought process and, and what you enjoyed in those translations. And thank you so much for your generosity and all the time you spent. It, it, was, it, was, it was a
1: joy to do, and it was, it was a joy to, to read all, all of the responses that people had uh, to, these, to these particular po- poems. And, it, you know, it, it felt like something that, that uh, it could only have come out of that particular moment that we were in back in, back in April.
0: Thank you for listening and to find out more, please visit www.modernpoetryintranslation.com.